Hello everybody and welcome to another podcast, a kind of bonus podcast because the last one that we did, um, I was speaking to Jim and Pat Byrne and Samina Chowdhury about the project 10 Writers Telling Lies, which is both a literary and musical collaborative project. And if you haven't heard that, you should probably listen to that first because this one is from the launch night of 10 Writers Telling Lies. Um, It's quite simple. We have recorded the whole evening and we're going to put it up online for you to have a listen to. We had thought about editing it down, but nobody deserved to be left out. So here you've got the full thing. Um, Mic adjustments and all. It's uh, quite a lengthy podcast, so I'll be quiet and let you enjoy the night of 10 writers telling lives and when it was brought to the world. And as Jim says at the very end, buy the book. Okay, thanks very much. I'd like to welcome everybody. It is fantastic that you've uh, come out to listen to Glasgow writers that are in this brand new spanking new book which is incredibly attractive. And if you've not bought it yet, I will personally seek you out and uh, get the money out of your pocket because you have to buy the book. Because of the amount of effort, the huge amount of effort that's went into this, uh, including all the writers, which I'll just name right now. Hold on a second. Right, the writers that are uh, coming, well, not all of them, I think there's one missing, but I'll not tell you who that is. Uh, tonight, you're going to be listening to Stephanie Brown. Pat Byrne. James Carson. Samina Chowdhury. James Connerty. Pauline Lynch. Callum McLean. Callum's very popular, that's for sure. Uh, Gillian Margaret Mays. Michael Norton. And Stephen Watt. So I'd like to uh, thank everybody, all those writers, for uh, participating in the project and for putting their best work in this book, because the work in the book, the writing and the poetry, is the best that can be. It's absolutely fantastic. And I would also like to thank... Pam McDonald, who did all the artwork. And this is the most beautiful book, all the design. Uh, so that's a special man you'll see that is absolutely stunning. So thanks very much, Pam. Really appreciate it. Uh, so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to get each of the writers up and they're going to recite uh, a short piece of their work from the book. And uh, some of these writers have not actually done much public, uh, what's the word to use for writers? spoken word. So you really need to be welcoming uh, and friendly. And when they come up here, big smiles to make them comfortable, okay? Because some folk are going to be very nervous. It's a very big hall. So make sure that you are very welcoming and you don't make it difficult for them. I know you will be, okay? So what else I need to tell you? Uh, Apart from buy the book. Uh, Sorry? Fire exits, yeah. Well, I don't know what the fire exits are. That is usually what you're, you're usually told, tell them about the fire exits. I can tell you that there's a door there. 
that goes outside. So if the fire alarm goes, my advice would be to go to that door and go outside. I think that's that bit done. Okay, there's something else in here. I can't remember what it was. Uh, doesn't matter. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite each of the, the writers in turn up onto the stage and they're going to give you some spoken word from their story. I don't know if I've got the order, Pat. Have you got a piece of paper with the order on it? Or on? I might, this order might be right. Is that right? It's uh, Stephen Watt, Gillian Mays, James Carson. Does that sound about right? Okay. Okay. Okay, so without further ado, uh, once I tell you a tiny bit about all, all the writers, I'm going to invite a superstar of the poetry world, which is Stephen Watt, up onto the stage. Uh, Stephen Watt is the Dumbartonshire FC poet in residence. Now there's a thing. Uh, a crime poet and one half of the Gothic spoken word project, Neon Poltergeist. Neon Poltergeist. His debut collection, Spit, was published in 2012 and the 2016 follow-up pamphlet, Optograms, was shortlisted in Saboteur's Best Pamphlet category. Stephen is a former winner of the St. Anza Digital Slam, Poetry Rivals Slam, Huey Healy Award, and the Tartan Treasures Award. He currently writes reviews for punk magazine Louder Than War and The Mumble. So come on up, Stephen. Give Stephen a big round of applause. Thanks. going to be nervous about anything guys then it's uh, all the instruments up here you don't get that in poetry you just jump up it's a microphone here you've got chairs and guitars and banjos and oh, be careful so I'm going to write uh, going to read two poems for you uh, which were written in association with uh, Jim's music so this ties in with Jim's song Dinny 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 and this one is called City Break Unglued from Scottish bogs, we watch green shanks arrive, glutting on shrimps and crabs in the salt marsh, flaunting their sewage-smeared twinkle to locals like you, pilgrims like me. Love's old dreams slipped away from the veins of Donegal salted rocks. The grail for an abandoned fairground horse was a rider, a coin, a partner to share the journey with. Returning to the hotel where earlier we had made love, I found a sprig of clover folded inside the Bible, an emerald heart split in two, three, four, and a ferry crossing ticket to Stranra alone. Thanks. Thank you. And my second poem was written uh, alongside Lucilia Weir. Um, this poem is called Mucker, and it was written about a friend of mine who will be my usher five weeks today, uh, Kevin. So, yeah, this is uh, kind of a little nod back to days of yore. Chapping doors for ginger bottles, we made 90 pence in total. Three bags of monster munch and a pack of opal fruits became the divvied spoils of our loot, resulting in a double arc of spectral colours being puked across your Maz Deluxe carpet. Scalped on your arse then sent to your room was no hardship compared to being frog-marched back to my mothership. Hands belted until palm lines blazed a brilliant maroon. Brothers in arms, stitch school badges turned into Olympic medals, ties shred into ribbons in every competition we were involved in. 
You picked, sorry, you were involved in, but there was no love lost. You picked me for your Fitbit team, regardless how shite I may have been, hooted when I scored and motivated when I seemed beaten. Flick the Vs when the older teens yelled, gay boys. Importantly, remember to leave the knee in. Older, but none the wiser, we knew that Adolf Hitler lived to 95, that Elvis was still alive, and Noel Gallagher was John Lennon in disguise. Conspiracy theories were thoroughly analysed. You'd teach me how to chat up a poster of Rachel Stevens, teasing me when I closed my eyes to lean in and kiss her soft, laminated lips, even though I knew you were scheming to do the same the instant I left you both alone. S Club 7 was the start of many relationships. Now it's eyes front, a wink, a dig in the side and blink, you may miss it. A stiff drink shared to steady the nerves, straighten the fussy ties, shake hands, pats in the back and thanks big man for always being on my side. Benches rise behind me and a blushing bride glides down the aisle to the sound of a church organ ready to relieve you of the hardest job in the world. Thank you very much. Thanks, Stephen. Brilliant as usual. Okay, next up we've got uh, Gillian Mays. And Gillian just said to me, do not read my biog. Uh, because I think it's so good that she's embarrassed. How about that? So I'm not going to read it because there are steps actually on the left-hand side. It's just for, for anybody else that comes up here. <laughs> so there you go. You're on, Gillian. It's a bit like a relay race, this. I feel we should be handing a baton to each other, but it's, uh, it's quite difficult to follow. <laughs> Don't worry. It's difficult to follow Stephen because he's always um, droll, if not downright funny, and he's always kind of uh, life-affirming and so on, whereas, sadly, I tend to uh, write more dark kind of stuff, normally about minor domestic tragedies, such as man fails to make a woman a cup of tea, thus compromising the relationship and utterly ruining the rest of their lives. But th this isn't entirely in that vein. I have to say it's slightly more upbeat than that. This is called Paris in the Spring and it relates to Jim's song, Maybe I Just Don't Know How to Love You. Paris in the Spring. We were staying in a small hotel near the Alley Verde in the 11th arrondissement. It was a last minute thing. My first thought was, why didn't he mention it earlier so that I could have looked forward to it? I've always felt things more keenly than anyone would want to, and I'm always looking carefully at how I'm treated. I can't see any way around this, unless I'd spent my life on Valium or been a little drunk the whole time. I find it difficult, for example, to remember the nice things he says to me. But we were in Paris, it was almost spring, and I was happy. We'd been up the Eiffel Tower that afternoon. There had been a long queue and a group of Romani children had stuck to us begging until I gave the oldest girl a baguette I'd just bought. She spat on the ground and gave it to another child. 
You're not doing her any favour, you know, he said to me. They need money, it's not for themselves. Mostly, he didn't state the obvious, and that was one of the things I liked about him. That and being able to talk to him about anything. Of course you can do that with anyone, but what I mean is he didn't judge me for it. I could tell him how my brother and I had different views of the things that happened in our childhood, like the motorbike accident we saw near our house. Yes, I'd said to my brother. I remember his big black boot flying off and hitting the hedge. It wasn't just a boot, said my brother. So I could tell my man all this stuff and he wouldn't say, oh yes, it's the same with me and my sister. You wouldn't believe we'd lived in the same family. All this made me love him so much that I couldn't think he wasn't always in my life, that he wasn't in the photos from my childhood. Charlie, it was a nice, plain name. He didn't have too many faults, just things like eating when he was on the phone. But faults are fine if you think someone loves you. I was beginning to wonder though. Even arriving in Paris, opening the door to our hotel room, seeing the Seine in the distance, even when I sat on the bed, which seemed to me like an invitation. Even then he said, God, I must get some sleep. I don't know why I'm so tired these days. I don't know why either, though I spent a lot of time trying to work it out. He was asleep by the time I got back from the bathroom. I put on my new silk nightdress and crawled in beside him. Another thing, he said he'd just forgotten about Valentine's Day, even though it was our first year together. Maybe he'll remember next year. But as soon as he left, I shredded the card I'd got him. Too often I would lie awake after some presumed slight on his part, composing final texts which I would never send. You crossed a line last week. I know you're busy, but how long does it take to send a text? Like I said, they were never sent. On the second day, we went to the Louvre, watching the crowd around the Mona Lisa and not really seeing the painting itself. On the way home, the street sun was still warm enough to make us linger at an outside table sipping Pernod, not because we liked it, but because we were in Paris. I had just taken off my sunglasses and had a shiver with the sun dimming when a car in the next street backfired, making me jump. Charlie looked at me with a small smile, but then the noise went again, only it was being rapidly repeated, and it was clear that it was no car and no backfiring. People at the next table picked up their belongings and quickly went inside the cafe. Some people ran up the street away from the noise. Charlie and I looked at each other. He wasn't smiling anymore. We both stood up. I reached for my things. And then the explosion went off. Not in the next street, but just up the road. Debris fell everywhere, knocking the glasses from our table. People were screaming, down. Charlie was shouting at me. He grabbed my arm and forced me to the ground. And then he lay on top of me, covering the sides of my face and my head with his hands. I felt I couldn't breathe, and yet I was breathing too much. He whispered in my ear, and I can't remember what he said, but it was the soothing sounds you would make to a child. There, there kind of sounds. It'll be all right. I was aware of boots racing past my head and a lot of shouting, and there were guns firing. And still Charlie was talking, and this time I am remembering the good things, for he was saying, my sweet, my love, you're okay, you're okay, it'll be over soon. Of 
course, we didn't know the details till the next day, but we got back to the hotel safely. I cried a bit. We finished the leftover wine and then had a slow bath together. I couldn't sleep. All through the night, I couldn't sleep. I was saying to myself over and over, he lay there on top of me, he protected me, he lay there, he loves me, he loves me. And now he lay beside me asleep and I took hold of his hand, trying not to waken him and once pressed my lips against his fingers interlinked with mine so that he moved, disturbed and turned over. But I lay awake all night and when the birds began to sing, I got up to watch until dawn had made the whole sky pink. Thank you. Thanks, Gillian. That was fantastic. One of these days I'm going to jump up there and fall, and that'll be amusing. But in the meantime, uh, next up we've got, uh, we've actually got Callum coming up to read uh, James Carson's piece. Uh, James couldn't make it tonight. Uh, so I'll just tell you a little bit about James Carson. James Carson is a Glasgow writer whose short stories have featured in many publications, including From Glasgow to Saturn and Tip Tap Flat an anthology edited by Louise Welsh. He's performed his work as far afield as Berlin and was a winner of the Dear Scotland Writing Competition. And somebody helpfully has actually added this little bit. Unfortunately, James can't be with us tonight, so his story will be read by Callum McLean. <laughs> Welcome. Hello. Uh, that was actually me who added that in at the end, just for just in case. Uh, can you hear me okay out the back? Everybody? Fantastic. Uh, yeah, so it's hard to follow that introduction because I am not James Carson, but um, yeah, hopefully we'll get to work with him soon. But it has benefited me in a way because I get to read the words of a writer who I've admired his work for uh, quite a few years now. Uh, so I'm going to be reading an abridged version of James's story, Ordinary Time. So if you want to know how it ends, and I think you will, you'll find the answer to that question and many others in our brand new book available on the table in the corner. So feel free to purchase a copy. Okay. Ordinary Time by James Carson. <clears throat> it began, as it always began, with an atrocity. The murder weapon had been made in 1906, a classic of its kind. It was admired as much for its craftsmanship as for its formidable power. Operated by a skilled and sensitive practitioner, the majestic instrument could elevate the soul to empyrean heights. But in the hands of Elsie Murray Miller, the organ of St. Cecilia's was a killing machine. Every finger slip and fumbled key curdled the blood in Father Bernard's veins as he proceeded up the center aisle. Upon reaching the altar, the parish priest gave a stage cough into the microphone, a signal to Elsie that enough really was enough, but no. She was resolved to stretch out her star turn in the spotlight, giving Walk With Me, Oh My Lord, a full and brutal execution. With the final dissonant note dispatched, Father Bernard breathed in the blessed silence before taking the plunge. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. He dispensed with any pleasantries and led his flock into the opening prayer. 
I confess to Almighty God. His parishioners took up the cue and mumbled their way through the prayer of expiation with the dispassion of tranquilized livestock. Father Bernard surveyed the gathering, too dismal to be described as a congregation. The stalwarts were at the front, Paddy Farrell, Tom Tynan, Alice Ferns. The rest, a meagre assortment of fair-weather pilgrims and unfamiliar blow-ins, were scattered randomly around the church. Far from the Bianchowskis and their mewling infant, not one of them was below the age of 60. It was what the bishop might have called an unpromising demographic. A buttery light spilled onto the altar from a side window, a reminder of the outside world. The old church and its chapel house occupied the centre of a valley that in every sense contained the town. At this time on a Sunday morning, the non-church-going classes were exercised by momentous decisions. Would it be two or three rashers? Prune the hydrangeas or plant the begonias? Some were making love, others were having sex. Next to the murmuring river, the commerce of the town, which these days amounted to no more than the pub and the post office, was Sunday stilled. Despite being poor in numbers and poorer still in spirit, at this moment, the Church of St. Cecilia was the life and soul of the town. Father Bernard took his seat for the readings. Paddy Ferrell, broad of neck, weak of breath, mounted the pulpit and waited for his audience to settle. A lifetime's devotion to Benson and Hedges had conferred on Paddy's voice the resonance of a cement mixer, and he groaned through a sire, embellishing his delivery with melodramatic pauses and frightful facial contortions. His expression darkened as he reported the prophet's warnings of God's terrible vengeance on the damned. But then, Paddy's face was transfigured with wonder as he foresaw the day of redemption, when the lame would leap like a deer and the tongues of the speechless would be songful with joy. Father Bernard closed his eyes and absorbed the word of God. It was all, quite plainly, rampant shite. The souring of his faith had been less of an epiphany, more of a slow puncture. A ministry which had started with missionary zeal had been eroded down the decades by a dismal cycle of services and sacraments. Since Father Bernard had become the town's parish priest, cheerless gatherings of the Legion of Mary had evaporated most of his spiritual reserves, and the endless cups of tea with women in sitting rooms, while their husbands skulked in bedrooms, had washed away any crumbs of belief that remained. As Paddy embarked on the second reading, Father Bernard observed that St. Paul might have thought twice about writing to the Corinthians had he known that his message would be mangled into an ear-scraping mush by a frustrated thespian. Paddy was one of Father Bernard's Saturday morning regulars. He would announce his entry into the confessional with a prolonged coughing fit before unburdening his conscience of multiple episodes of masturbation. Once, after reciting his act of contrition, Paddy had pondered that his transgressions were mere drops in the ocean compared to the sins of lesser mortals. I'd say you could tell some stories about what you've heard in here, Father. In truth, the weekly sacrament of penance merely reacquainted Father Bernard with a tedious litany of missed masses, lost tempers, and forlorn battles with the bottle. The closest they ever got to anything racy was from Tom Tynan, and even that was hardly likely to set the confession box alight. I've been associating with homosexual men, Tom would begin. Nothing happens, Father. There's nothing carnal. We just have afternoon tea and discuss the romantic poets. But even this bore down on Tom's delicate conscience. Father Bernard had told him often enough, there was no sin in a bunch of bachelors keeping company over the cucumber sandwiches. Or, as he'd actually put it, did Jesus not break bread with his disciples? To no avail. Tom fretted that the Lord would smite him down on the day of judgment after exposing him as a filthy pervert. 
Father Bernard rose to deliver the gospel according to Matthew. Early that morning, while revisiting the story of the infant Jesus being lost and then found in the temple, he had reaffirmed that he and Christ would never have hit it off. There was something distasteful about the child Jesus telling his distraught mother, did you not realize I would be about my father's business? Father Bernard thought, at the very least, little brat deserved a clipper in the year for insolence. He'd come across other instances of what he considered to be Christ's attitude problem. Our Lord and Saviour, thought Father Bernard, came across as a bit of a wanker. He was spared having to go into Christ's shortcomings in his sermon, thanks to a letter from the bishop unveiling his plans to renew the diocese. Peppered with access strategies and focused solutions, the letter read like an address to shareholders from the chairman of the board. God finally got a look in towards the end of the letter, but it was clearly an afterthought. Finally, Father Bernard reported the joyful news that on the 22nd Sunday in ordinary time, the bishop would pay a visit to sustain the faithful of St. Cecilia's. Father Bernard did not add that by the 22nd Sunday in ordinary time, he would be long gone. Paddy Farrell took up the collection, accompanied by Elsie's gruesome maiming of Lord of all hopefulness. Father Bernard cast a murderous glance towards the organist. At first, her proposition had seemed like a blessing. When the recently widowed Elsie offered her services as his live-in housekeeper and her talents as a skilled musician, it seemed too good to be true. As things turned out, it was. Father Bernard had come to loathe everything about Elsie. The tight perm, the large mouth that could comfortably accommodate a fully assembled deck chair, the oversharing of every tedious thought, and the large nose that poked into every recess of his life. Above all, he detested the monstrous abuse she inflicted on the helpless church organ. From the start, she'd assured him that she would be no perfect, but six months on, there was no trace of improvement. The bread and water were carried to the altar by Paddy Farrell and Alice Ferns, another of Father Bernard's weekly penitents. Since her mother had died the previous year, the life had been scooped out of Alice. I've no one to fight with anymore, Father, and so nothing to confess. Sometimes the struggle to excavate something, anything, that might require absolution was too much for Alice, and she nodded off. During those moments, listening to her emphysemic snores in the dark, Father Bernard's thoughts would incline to a woman with a soft wave in her hair and a colour called Carmen on her lips. His first encounter had been as unsolicited as it was unexpected, but now he could not conceive of life without her. His Saturday nights with Barbara had brought him closer to a state of ecstasy than anything he'd experienced on Sunday mornings with the Virgin Mary. And although she had not known it, the unlikely figure who had brought Barbara and Father Bernard together was Elsie Murray Miller. Had Elsie not left her nylon stockings hanging to dry in the bathroom, Father Bernard would never have thought to touch them, nor to hold them, nor to covet them. And he would not then have thought to borrow Elsie's cream linen blouse with a sweetheart neckline, nor her pleated skirt, nor her Marks and Spencer's underwear. Had all of this not come to pass, there would have been no need for Father Bernard to procure appropriate accessories. To this end, he had drawn upon his experience as a spinner of parables. He'd explained to the female assistant in the department store that a wig with a soft wave and a lipstick called Carmen was all his terminally ill sister needed to regain some dignity before going to God. By the time he had finished his fable, the young woman was in bits. At any point, Father Bernard could have taken a step back, but when the fully formed Barbara had appeared before him in the mirror for the very first time, he understood that a point of no return had been breached. Thank you very much.
Thanks, Callum. Very well read. And thanks to James Carson for his story. Really enjoyed that. Okay, uh, next up, we have Pat Byrne. Hold on, Pat. And I'm, of course, extremely biased because <laughs> Pat's my wife. And uh, so I'm going to have to say something more than just her biog, which is that Pat has been uh, extremely instrumental in the, uh, this whole project, uh, getting the book together. In fact, Pat uh, brought all the writers together, chose them all, and uh, has been basically working her ass off uh, for the year and a half that we've been running this project to get to this point. So when she does come up to read her story, I want you to welcome her warm warmly. Okay, Pat, what does it say in your biog? Since 1999, Pat Byrne has written features and reviews for her website, glasgowestend.co.uk. The site includes a section dedicated to Glasgow writers where Pat has contributed her own short stories. She's completed an MLIT in creative writing at the University of Glasgow and has performed her work on the University Subcity Radio at the University of Glasgow Open Studies Creative Writing Student Showcase. The West, End, the West End Festival and the Weed Literary Festival party. So welcome, Pat Byrne. The story is called Sweet Gone Tomorrows. The funeral wasn't that sad. Like they said, in a way it was a relief. Maisie McClinchy hadn't recognised anyone for a long time and she'd reached a good age, 92, not a bad innings. Sandy had wanted to come along, so here we were with him joining in every hymn. Funny how he could remember all the words, even the parts just meant for the canter. I could hear he was hoarse, but he could still hold the tune, and he was enjoying himself. Carla, the youngest granddaughter, read the eulogy. I'd noticed her right away, her cerise hair conspicuous amongst all the black garb. She did a good job of the reading. You couldn't help but smile at the humorous anecdotes. The idea of Maisie with her vodka planked in the holy water bottle. She used to be in our house every Friday when we came from school, with her hat on, even though she lived up the same close. She was a hell of a blether, and she hated to be interrupted, so we sat quiet. When she remembered we were there, she'd fire questions at us. Hope you are behaving yourselves. Are you helping your mammy? She always brought a packet of jammy dodgers, they were just for the big folk, but one time she caught Johnny sneaking a biscuit off the plate. Put that back, I'll scalp your ears. But he put it in his mouth and ran out. We all laughed and mum shushed us and tutted a bit, but she was laughing as well when she told dad later. Maisie McLynch is a curmudgeon, he said. Does that mean a crabbit woman, said Johnny. Good guess, and crabbit's right but it can be a man or a woman, a bad-tempered person. He spelled it out, and then he got us to write it down. He did that a lot. Johnny struggled with his reading and writing, 
but he was the best laugh. He died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. He was only 37. It was a terrible funeral. I can't remember what hymns we had. I can't remember much about it, except the chapel was mobbed and my sister's flight from Canada was late. When she arrived, she squeezed in beside me and we held hands. It's been 13 years. I could cry yet thinking about him. Mrs. McGlinch's purview was in the West Highway Motel. We get a seat in the corner and the waitress brought plates of sandwiches and sausage rolls. When she poured the tea, Sandy lifted his cup. Cheers, he said. It'll be him next. Nobody's talking about funeral plans. It's not like he knows he's dying, but every day there's a little less of him. He's forgotten where he lives and who I am. But the thing is, most of the time he's happy. When you phone, he always says, that's me just back. Have you been out somewhere nice? I've been away in a week's holiday. If you were to ask him where he'd been, he'd come up with something. Thanks. Thanks, Pat. Okay, next up, and to close this little bit of the spoken word, uh, we've got Pauline Lynch. Uh, Pauline Lynch is an actor and writer. She began her professional life playing Lizzie in the film adaption of Irvin Welsh's book, Trainspotting. There you go. Since then, she has worked, uh, or since then, she has worked internationally in stage, film, TV, and radio. She completed her MLIT in creative writing at University of Glasgow, where she won the Scepter Prize. Pauline's writing has been published on the website www.glasgowestend.co.uk and her debut novel, Armadillos, was published by Legend in 2016. Big welcome to Pauline Lynch. Right, you're going to have to do something about this microphone. <laughs> Gillian said earlier she was five, three and a half and I thought you're getting no sympathy off me for that. <laughs> Thank you, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Hiya, thanks for having me. This is called Up and Down Kind of Love. The island was a mile from the mainland and largely forgotten. Angus had lived there his whole life and seen its decline. Families shrank, old folks were left to die alone. One day he'd die alone too, but the solitude suited him and his kingdom only expanded as the population dwindled. Angus had a deep love for the land, rough as it was, wild and grey, a bit like himself. He didn't understand the young ones who left. No opportunity, they said. But Angus knew opportunity was something you built yourself. Go out searching for it and you'll only run into trouble. Trouble or a brick wall. Make use of what you've got, he thought to himself as he prepared his boat for a necessary supply trip to the mainland. They'd built a giant Tesco opposite the old race course. He had an idea some folk didn't like it. There'd been a petition. 
But Angus thought it was superb. Everything he needed under one roof. The usual supplies, of course, like soap and toilet paper and tins of soup and carrots and beans and mints and the like. But also socks and underwear and electrical items and not just the small ones, but big machines like hoovers and dishwashers and televisions. Angus could spend a long time in there, a few times a year, oblivious to the glances he drew from the staff and other customers. Only once had he caught a strange look from a woman pushing a trolley with her son in the child seat. The child had reached out and grabbed his sleeve. Angus turned in surprise, but the woman snatched her child's hand back and with a sharp no, pushed the trolley past him. Angus, who'd raised his hand in greeting to the boy, shuffled backwards in surprise. And in the stark superstore lighting, he realised his hands were filthy with months of ingrained island dirt. He pulled his coat sleeves down over his fists as best he could and resumed shopping, albeit feeling a wee bit lonelier than before. But tonight, his hands were scrubbed and spotless. He counted out his payment in notes, coins and coupons and missed the exchange of sly smirks between the girls on the tills. Who didn't notice his hands at all, but only had eyes for his long straggle of hair and fraying wool coat, alive with baubles and soaked through from the journey over. Night had entered the shop's car park. He packed his supplies in a hurry and turned the transit van in the direction of the hole in the wall that was Mick's pub. Unless you'd lived there for years, you'd barely notice it. And if you did, you'd avoid it. The only people who went in were those who seemed part of a different world, an older, forgotten world. People who felt they only became real after passing through the doors of the tiny room with the bare floorboards, who sat at the bar nursing or downing wee drams, drinking the time away in a companionable silence, only dimly aware of transitory figures on the other side of the mottled glass windows. Sometimes they had too much. Sometimes, in the days that followed each trip to the mainland, he pondered the possibility that his self-imposed exile from society might be nothing more than a means of moderation. Angus didn't approve of excess. Take what you need and nothing more. The windscreen was fogging up, so he wound the windows down and felt the sigh of cold night air flit across his face. One more trip before Christmas, and then he'd hole up until March, or maybe even April. It wasn't that the water was always too rough, but the cold was ruthless. Once it got into your bones, it lay there till June. He edged his way closer to the exit. It was busier than normal. A group of laughing youngsters darted between cars, yelling to each other. A giant green teddy bear landed with a soft thwump on the windscreen, its glass eyes rattling before it was swept up and flung high over the other cars to an invisible catcher shouting, here, here. It was the carnival, he remembered, as he reached the front of the queue. Always this time of year. Somehow he'd missed it as he pulled in earlier, but now the fairground lights blazed against the black sky. The big wheel spun round and round in a huge metal contraption with long limbs like a spider jerked up and down, back and forth, the occupant's tiny legs dangling precariously high and then suddenly low to the ground. A car horn sounded behind him, bringing him back to life. He threw the van into first and took the corner, not noticing he'd gone the wrong way for Mick's pub. He bumped up onto the kerb, wincing at the violent noise from the car behind, which was now overtaking him at some pace. 
He could hear the music now, loud and aggressive, the opposite of inviting. But for some reason, he would never fathom. He got out of the van and crossed over. The smells were something else. Fried food and toffee apples. His mouth watered. Two girls wearing short shorts and ugly boots like bear's feet approached. Goosebumps prickled their bare arms and legs. One of them sucked a giant red candy dummy, her lips glistening with the stickiness of it. She caught his gaze briefly and was gone, swallowed up by the expanding crowd. Further in he went, so much noise, life. A youth fell into him, or was pushed. Sorry, sorry, mister, he said, without even looking at him. What was he doing here anyway? He wouldn't be going on anything. Being thrown around at a high speed didn't appeal. He bought a poke of chips for the shocking price of £3.20 and to soothe the shock, he overloaded on the salt and vinegar and tomato sauce, which were all free. He was glad when he finished them. He'd been watching the crazy house. Those steps that kept making you walk up and down stairs and didn't let you go anywhere. What was the point in that? But people kept handing their money over for the privilege of going on a journey that took you nowhere. And the ghost train. He'd been on one of those before, full of fake skeletons and bad mannequins and pretend cobwebs, yet the people piled in, especially young couples, he noticed. Screams and cuddles, that was it. He knew their game. He'd picked the wrong place to stand. A seemingly blind spot where he was jostled by passers-by and bombarded by the noise from at least three different rides. You couldn't call it music. The bass travelled through your body like a series of punches. He'd best be off. Then, beneath it all, he heard something else, something lilting and tuneful. The carousel, of course. He hadn't seen it, but there must be one here somewhere. He made his way through the crowd until he found it. Oh my, even in this modern money-grabbing place, it was a thing of beauty. A golden spinning top with a herd of intricate metal horses, all painted a variety of colours from pastel pink to black. A necklace of lights twinkled their welcome, but he kept his distance as the mainly riderless horses danced up and down and round and round. You want go, yes? Angus blinked. You want go, yes? She said again. She stood on the carousel platform holding onto one of the poles and every time she passed, she called the same thing. You want go? Yes? With a sense of dismay, Angus realised she was talking to him. The next time she came round, the horses were slow enough for her to jump off. Come, come, she implored him, taking him gently by the arm. Too courteous to refuse, Angus allowed himself to be led. Truth was, he wasn't used to people noticing him and he didn't know what else to do. When they reached the step up, she looked at him expectantly. I cannot lift, she said. Up, you, up here, like this. And she nipped up and patted a saddle. This? You like this one? This one, Angus said, pointing three horses along. Very good. I take this one beside. Red is favourite. She smiled at him as she nipped onto the horse beside him and held her hand out to steady him as he climbed. And this, much to his surprise, is how Angus came to find himself the only paying passenger on the Friday night carousel. Mama, make it long play, she called to the sour-looking woman in the control room at the centre of the ride. Five pounds, mister, you pay. 
Angus handed over the note, not caring about the sign saying all rides 250. The girl's hair was long and blonde and fell down her back like the best men in show, he thought. She grasped the pole in front of her, one hand over the other, and relaxed her head onto her outstretched arms, all the while smiling kindly at him. A smear of lipstick sat on her teeth. You hold, like this, yes? His stomach flipped as they began to move, up, then down, gently gathering pace, until the machine found its rhythm and kept him there, up and down in time with the lilting music pouring from the speakers. It fun, yes? She reached over and touched his coat. Aye, he said gruffly. Aye, aye. What? I can't hear you. Aye, I said. I said aye, Angus bellowed. She laughed. Without that orange stain, those teeth would be whiter than pearls. He didn't notice the flaking paintwork of the saddle or the chipped ears and tails of the old horses. He didn't hear the mechanical whir behind the undulating tune accompanying them. He forgot about the strangers out there in the darkness for three minutes or five. This was the world. But then the world was slowing down and the girl made a sad face. With an invisible whip, he tried to drive his horse faster. She laughed and he was pleased. The ride stopped, even though no one else wanted to get on. So he gave the girl another fiver and nodded to the woman in the control room. By the time they stopped again, the girl looked bored. I back to work, she said, and disappeared into the control room. The older woman came out, barely looking at him as she brushed past and disappeared into the mayhem. Still no one queued for the carousel, as though it existed on an invisible plane separate to the rest of the world. He followed the girl into the control room. You know allowed in here, she said, cross. He held his hands up as though to say, no harm meant, and he moved further in. She squeezed herself away from him, accidentally setting the horses running again. A rainbow of colour spilled over her face, yellow, pink, red. It spread over them as the ride went faster. The room was a kaleidoscope, and they the changing shapes within it. No smiles for me now, princess. Where's my smiles? What do you mean? What do you want? Another step, and he was leaning over her. Oh, just this. Smile for me. Wider. She was forcing it. He could tell. But he didn't mind. The lipstick still stained her teeth. He licked his thumb, cupped her chin in his hand and wiped it away. You were kind to me tonight and me just a lonely old man. Her teeth weren't as even as he'd thought. His thumb travelled over them all. All the sharp ridges and their smooth walls and their fleshy beds. Strange that her skull was entirely weightless, just like the sheep skulls littering the moor at home. She was a lot smaller off the horses, right enough. Looking over her head, past the up and down ponies, to the fair still in full swing, he retracted his thumb and dried it in the fist of his hand in a corkscrew motion. You're a wee princess bothering with the likes of me, he said. Made my night, so you did. He looked into her eyes, as dark and full as the water he'd crossed to find her. He took her soft hand between his rough ones, fleshy like a child's and warm, though her nails were so bitten down, dark slivers of moon appeared to rim her fingertips. He'd like to kiss each one, but he looked at her and laughed, and patted her hand and left, sculling his way through spinning ponies like a plucky boat on high seas until his feet made ground. 
moving through the crowd, dizzy with the discovery of this new world, sights he'd missed earlier stumbled across his path uninvited. Base camp for the travellers there, wire fence behind, toilets over there, all those street lamps were out, bit of a dead patch, space for a transit here. The dim glow behind the small, dark window of Mix welcomed him as usual. He'd never seen it go out. He took his usual and huddled over it at the bar, then took another and another and enjoyed the heat firing in his belly. His eyes, when he lifted them from the brown liquid swirling in his glass, were alive with hope or anticipation or expectation. All right, Angus, what's tickled you? asked Mick. Angus smiled and shook his head as he donned his damp woolen coat. Come on now, Mick. A man's allowed secrets, he replied jovially. Aye, right enough, Angus, Mick said. This your last trip before Christmas, as usual? Ach, you never know, Mick. Maybe I. Maybe no. Maybe one of these days I'll surprise you. Thank you. And now it's my pleasure to introduce to you the music section of the night. And we're going to have Jim Byrne and Graham McIntosh.
Long for better ways Be mindful you don't chase your days away And all your cash down payments Free extra plays So we are but we here today I'll leave my guitar there Thank you. Can I just uh, say, somebody was asking me, uh, or asking at the table, if they could get their book signed. So what I would say to you is, be proactive. Uh, <laughs> seek out the writers and get them to sign your book, okay? All of these songs were co-written by the writers in the book, and then those songs were in turn uh, turned into stories. Hold on a second, I'm in a bit of a fanco here. How did that happen? Some kind of origami type thing. Just have to put up with it. Not to worry. Total professionals. Okay, here we go. This one's called, what's this one called? Graham. Picture of you. Just a misfortune child, but I know you. 
I tell you I'll be home You tell me not to be cruel But the cream still rocks For the child on you Next to my heart I've got a picture of you So you tell me that you sing you Tell me that you dance As I wipe away my tears You tell me your hopes for romance Just a misfortune child But I know you're not a fool I tell you I'll be home You tell me not to be cruel child I knew next to my heart I've got a picture of you For the crystal rocks For the child I knew Next to my heart I've got a picture of you I said next to my heart I've got a picture of you Thanks very much. Okay. Madam, what's your name? You. Because I'm going to sing you a wee song. Okay. I don't know if that's your husband or your boyfriend. Or the other plum the plumber. That's the plumber. So obviously I'm going to upset the plumber. Because you know? this one's for you. What did you say your name was, sorry? Margaret, this one's for you, Margaret. Which obviously uh, will upset some folk. Maybe I just don't know how to love you. Maybe I'm just not the loving kind. How to hold you, how to kiss you, how to whisper. How to make you feel special each night Maybe I just don't know how to love you Maybe I'm just not the loving kind For this time you're going to have to teach me 
teach me how to love you you. Now that one was written with Gillian Mays, so she's jealous obviously. Okay, what have we got next? Graham knows. Born to Doubt, okay. Oh yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you a, a wee secret that probably you already know, uh, which is, and it's not the lie in the book, uh, Ten Ways of Telling Lies, which is that we actually were supposed to have another singer here tonight, uh, but they called off today. So there you go. Which means I'm having to uh, learn some words and learn some songs. Uh, and So there may be the odd word, not quite right. So be patient. And I think that includes this next one. <laughs> Thank you. 
watched you ride the line. I watched you cross it out. You look for black or white, but all you find is down. Look to down upon your knees. Be like engine. Watch you close your hands Get down upon your knees We pray to understand We ask for your unease Cause we are born to doubt We wish the truth could shout Simple tale to tell Our job just to listen well So you look for comfort now Harvest all that's kind Wrap it up and take it home You should look for peace of mind For we are born to doubt We wish the truth could shout A simple tale to tell Our job just to listen you cross it out no need for black or white find the beauty in your doubt we are born to die we wish the truth could shout a simple tale to tell our job just to listen well Thanks to Graham, Graham McIntosh. Graham is uh, one of Glasgow's best guitar players and banjo players. He just laughs. But I know because I've known him for a long time and uh, he's a superb, what's the word I'm looking for? Gardener, exactly. No. <laughs> In my brain, I can never find those words. It's an age thing, I think. Okay, uh, so what is the one we're doing now? Right, okay, we'll finish this set with uh, another one of those ones that um, I did not expect to sing uh, and therefore didn't learn it. 
Stephen, it's called Lucilia Weir. All of these songs actually have got, uh, they're not entirely kind of devoid of some kind of truth or some kind of story behind them. They've all got stories behind them. Uh, and this particular one, uh, which is called Lucilia Weir, I don't think Lucilia's here tonight, but it is a real person. And uh, more or less, everything in the song happened. Like most of the songs, I think.
Thanks very much. Well, yes, we're going to have a very short break, and then the writers will be back on to do some more spoken word. Okay, so get your drinks quick. <laughs> back to your seat. Thanks very much. Uh, so on the second half, it's actually going to be Pauline Lynch who's going to introduce all the writers. So but I've been sent up because uh, apparently I can get everybody back in their seat and get the music off and be more aggressive and more manly, see? That's why I'm here. But uh, so we're due to get started and uh, I'm assuming the lights are totally different. So uh, bring the lights down. Oh, there you go. I was so assertive. Okay, so I'll just introduce Pauline and Pauline will take it from here. Okay, Pauline Lynch. Yes, you can give Pauline a hand. Hello, can you tell there was a wee bit of a confab happening there? Anyway, I uh, hope you're ready for the second half. Um, opening the second half, we've got Callum McLean, who you met earlier on reading James's story. He's a poet and a short story writer, a shop worker and a procrastinator. He's a graduate of the Creative Light Writing Emlet at the University of Glasgow. His poetry has been published in Gutter and Octavius magazine. He currently writes film reviews for glasgowestend.co.uk and posts new writing to the open Facebook page, Almost Poetic. So, Callum McLean. Hello again. Uh, right, um, so I'm going to do two poems for you. And the first one uh, requires just a wee bit of brief context. Uh, in America, in the Berkshires, there's a place called the Dreamaway Lodge. It's this really small, innocuous little building uh, by the forest, but it's got a really incredible and very strange history. It was a speakeasy, it was a brothel, it was a host of strange meetings over time. But in 1975, it was the site of this really spontaneous uh, convergence of 20th century cultural icons when uh, Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and the poet Allen Ginsberg and various others, beatniks and entourages, descended on this place. It was captured in these really uh, vivid photographs with like mostly black and white, but with flashes of greens and oranges. And uh, something about those photographs evoked to me The Wizard of Oz, uh, as well as the, the dream away uh, name of the place. So this is basically about uh, one of the lies that we all kind of tell ourselves when you're in a situation or a location that isn't just working for you anymore. And so you tell yourself, you know, I'm not there. I could be somewhere else, somewhere more alive, more vibrant, somewhere like this. So this is Dream Away. <clears throat> we are not here in these sullen surroundings with scowls in our faces and aches in our knees. No, we are heading down by the mountain state forest, approaching the lodge in the shade of the trees. Here's Mama, the owner. She's coming to greet us, orange dress billowing out in the breeze. She's climbing the steps and we're following after, guiding us through to the beckoning bar, where cameras flash around shapes at a table. It takes us a second to see who they are. It's Dylan and Baez with Guthrie and Mama, quietly strumming her lime green guitar. Now Ginsburg has joined and began to recite his voice cutting through with a signature rhythm. You're looking at Bob and I'm looking at Joan. There's nothing to say, we've made our decisions. We're walking towards them, they're starting to sing. The notes swirl around us, obscuring our vision. The rest of the night is a beautiful blur of fragmented images, colors and sound, where nothing is timetabled, structured or set, just functional chaos for meters around, until we can see when the atmosphere clears, the pages of lyrics they've left on the ground collections of songs that we never could hear, 
but reading them brings us straight back to this place. Awake in the shift pattern nine to five year and moving through life at our manager's pace. The Dreamaway Lodge, just a moment in time, but one that's too deep in our minds to replace. Thank you. Cheers. Uh, so my final one. Uh, this is linked in with uh, the song Jim and I collaborated on, which is called Promise That We'll Meet Again. And this is called Reunion. And just a wee bit of preamble. Uh, I work in a store uh, close to where I grew up. And as a result of that, I'm constantly, uh, what's the word? Reunited with figures from my past, uh, which can come with a strange new distance with this new role that may not have been there before. So that's where this kind of takes its inspiration from. Reunion. We pass each other sometimes, mutter slightly, share a nod, but we usually keep walking without stopping. It's been years since we last talked, though I've seen you in the queue, and you pay me fairly often for your shopping. And at Christmas in the pub, our groups will mingle for a while, and we'll all take turns in asking, how's it going? But the it remains unknown, as we answer with a shrug, then we part to stop the awkwardness from growing. I'll think about that moment, and I'll smile as I remember just how terrible we always were at science, and the way you took such risks to skive off and take the piss out of teachers who seemed unopposed to violence. And I wish I asked you then what I'm wondering right now, whether hating things was all that made us friends, or if someday, if we stopped long enough to really talk, would we promise then that we would meet again? Thank you very much. Thank you, Callum. Uh, our next reader is James Connerty. Uh, James graduated from Strathclyde University with an honours degree in English Lit in the mid-90s, and he's worked for a teacher for 20 years, worked as a teacher for 20 years. He started attending creative writing classes at Glasgow Uni eight years ago. His writings previously appeared in the Word magazine, the collection Tales from a Cancelled Country, and on glasgowestend.co.uk. Uh, welcome, James. Hello. Um, my story is called The Other Half, and I'm not going to read it all, so you're only really getting half. So if you want the other half, you're going to have to buy the book. Okay. So he had a girlfriend now, it seemed. There had been a disco, which he'd gone to in spite of the inner voice that had told him such things brought only pain, and invariably a degree of humiliation. In third year, he'd loitered in the corner at the Valentine's dance, failing to be nonchalant while the boys in his class went to ask Annie Fallon if she wanted to kiss him. His envoys returned with the message that there'd be no kissing and he'd get a slap if he came nearer. He'd consented to a request for the rest of the night and the remainder of the year. Why would you put yourself through that again? Aye, he was a fifth year now and clever, doing all the hires and making more pals since he'd moved from the mixed sections. He still had spots, but not as many as last year. And the voice that now had a tendency to spike sharply into the upper octaves with no advance warning. But these were not the words he'd used when Pat told him the youth club was having a disco. It's not my kind of thing, he'd said. You're daft if you don't, Pat said. This girl's gone that don't even go to school anymore. So what? So it's a sure thing. What is? Colour spread across Pat's face. This was not his kind of thing either. He had big brothers though, and things trickled down. 
Pat knew things that little brothers know. He leaned across the desk. You know, said Pat, you'll get your hole. The girls from the other school looked different from the girls at his own. More exotic, or just less familiar. He and his pals had camped in a corner of the hall and started working at a grading system for the girls. His field of play was more limited due to his past form. He could not, <clears throat> he could not simply walk up to a girl from his school and ask her to dance. Not a girl who knew about him and his past failures. But tonight, here tonight, what was he? A boy in a sharp suit and shiny shoes. He'd spent half an hour in front of the mirror, alternately spiking up and flattening out his hair until it looked acceptably messy. And there was a girl in a red dress standing there looking at him. She had light brown hair and a round face. She looked away and said something to a pal who looked at him and turned her back. Not a promising start. But fuck it, the song was finishing. He was going to ask her to dance. Maybe Lady in Red would come on and he could make a joke about it while they slow danced. Instead, the sounds of Yaz and the plastic population screamed out that the only way is up, baby. Fuck it, he was asking her anyway. When she took him outside, he was in uncharted territory. She led him past three boys, passing a roll-up between them, round the corner of the fire door, where a boy in a leather jacket sat in the back stairs, kissing a girl. Sorry, kissing a red-headed girl. He only saw the back of the boy's head and the girl's long fringe curling over the top of it. One of the boy's hands was around the girl's back and the other was on her hip. Right, that was one less thing to worry about. Hands. The couple broke away from each other and the boy turned round and nodded. More in acknowledgement than greeting. He recognised the boy as someone who used to hit him in second year. Not often enough that he'd ever learned his name. All right, Fran, said the long-fringed girl. This, he'd learned in the pause after the third dance, was his own companion's name. Francis, she'd told him, but then he'd said that people called him Jamie, and really it was just his gran and granda that did that. All right, Michelle, said Fran. She was still holding his hand. He thought about trying to put it around her waist, but he couldn't see a way of doing it that wouldn't be awkward. He was suddenly very aware of his other hand. He dragged his fingertips through his hair, brushing it behind his ear. You get any chewing gum, mate? The boy said to him. He did. He did have chewing gum. He'd got some in case somebody brought drink. Hold on, he said. He reached into his pocket. Empty. Other one. Must be. He'd have to drop her hand. You want some? He said, holding it out to her. But she shook her head. He opened the packet and offered it to the boy, who took it and tipped two pieces of chewing gum into his hand, chucking them into his mouth like he was swallowing pills. He stuck the packet in his pocket. Do you want to go back in? The red-haired girl said to the boy. Let's stay out, he said. What are you two doing? Just going to walk, Fran said. See yous, the other girl said. She went back to kissing the boy. It looked easy enough. Something anyone could do. They walked round the side and sat down together on a wall, and she let go of his hand and put hers inside his jacket. He could feel her, her fingers on his back. He put his hand on her waist, another one around her, and she lifted her other hand onto his shoulder. It's like a slow dance, he thought. And then she put her lips in his, opening them slightly. He pushed back with his, tilting his head more, wondering if he should close his eyes like she was. He wondered, why was she doing this with him? Who she thought she was kissing? Maybe the kind of boy who'd done this before, lots of times with lots of girls. Just another Friday night for that guy. Nothing special. He tried to kiss her like that guy would, but he had no idea what that would involve. And what he was doing felt like the right thing to do. When their tongues touched together, it felt strange. It was quite easy. A relief, really, that there wasn't more to it. Unless he was missing something out. He hoped it wasn't. 
When they stopped kissing, he isn't exactly sure how long they've been kissing for, but he would estimate it at several minutes, four maybe. He doesn't know if this is okay for a first kiss, but so far it's his personal best, but now he doesn't know what to do next. It's late, getting colder and dark for a summer evening. There's a quiet settling on the streets. The roads are quiet, but you can hear the muted sounds of the music from inside the hall. Goosebumps have risen along the bare skin of her arm. Are you cold? He says. He runs his hand up and down her skin, warming her, and surprising her with the himself with the level of intimacy he suddenly seems comfortable with. A wee bit, she says. Do you want my jacket? She looks amused, then tilts her head. Aye, go on then, she says. He takes it off and puts, her out, puts it around her shoulders. Fuck, it is cold. You're a good kisser, she says. He takes this as an invitation. At the end of the night, he walked her up to the train station. They were, they were with a group of girls from her school. Some of them encumbered by boys from his. Pat had his arm awkwardly thrown around a tall girl he'd been kissing on the dance floor. She was at least six inches taller than him, but she was quite pretty in a thin sort of way. Her name was Linda. She stretched the sound out really long, like her legs, when she said it. Linda's my best pal, Fran told him. He wanted her to be Francis, but in his head now she was Fran. I am pals with Pat too, he said. They had a lot of classes together this year, and he'd started going up to Pat's to study and listen to his big brother's U2 albums. He didn't know if any of that made Pat his best pal or not. We should go on a double date, Fran said. Linda nodded. He waited to see what Pat said, but Pat looked like he'd had a few cans at some point. His eyes had an antennas to them, and he kept spitting on the ground. Aye, get us your numbers, Pat said eventually. We can get into town next Saturday if you want, Linda said. He imagined receiving a phone call from a girl at home. They'd made the living room open plan last year. There was no way to take a call and not of his family here. In the end, Fran didn't ask him for his number, and she didn't give him hers. She just kissed him some more until they felt the electric zing that preceded the lights curving around the track in the dark. She kissed him again as the doors dinged a warning, and then he'd stood on the platform with all the lights and sounds going. The boys walked together for a bit, boasting and slagging before separating off. Then he was left alone at the bottom of the hill that led up to his street. He was still a boy in a suit, but he felt like a different one now. Thanks so much. And our next reader is Stephanie Brown. Uh, Stephanie is a freelance copywriter, subtitler, and a graduate of Glasgow University Creative Writing Emlet. Her work was shortlisted for the Scepter Prize in 2014 and has been published in From Glasgow to Saturn, Gutter Magazine, New Writing Scotland Magazine, and on the website glasgowestend.co.uk. So, welcome, Stephanie. Um, so this is a story called All Good Deeds. Um, all God's creatures have a right to live, the sign said. But nothing was a given, nothing was a right. Just wanting something didn't give you a right to have that thing. This was something that Lydia knew. It was constantly amazing how cruel religious people could be. Once when she was a kid, Lydia was nearly run over by a cycling nun. The nun had shrieked, get out the fucking way. In church, they put on a face of total beatific peace and kindness but really they were looking around at everyone and thinking, get out the fucking way. 
Speaking into the nun house after church, Lydia had been amazed to see them all crowded round the TV in a cigar cloud, cackling. Really, it must be amazing to think that no matter what you do, you're first in line at the pearly gates. This was God's flock, apparently. Lydia floated past them like a happy cloud with nothing on her mind, but secretly she felt every single one of them injecting her with poison guilt and questions to herself that she could never answer. What would it have been like? Well, now she'd never know. <clears throat> but at least she could go and get a strong drink to erase the memory of the silent scream. In some perverse mood, Lydia went to the nearest Irish bar and ordered a Guinness and imagined how she might be smoked for her evil doing. She called a friend, Ruth, who came and told her everything she needed to hear. They drank until everything in life seemed like a funny game. But Lydia woke up feeling like nothing was funny and nothing was a game. She felt scraped out and sick. Her hormones knew something weird was up. She squirmed about in bed, wishing only that she could confess to her mother and be forgiven. A sick fantasy about nappies and gurgling babies was playing in the background of her mind. Like, did you make the right choice, really? Come on, don't even start that shit, Ruth had said. Don't even start that shit. Even as the kid grew up in her mind and became a quirky little eight-year-old, probably with glasses, maybe wearing dungarees. Don't even start this shit, because what cartoon character is this you've summoned? It was Arthur. She's imagined a real-life version of Arthur, which just went to show how ridiculous the fantasy was. Look, it wasn't even a choice. Ruth. If you hadn't done it, I would have come at you with a coat hanger anyway. <clears throat> That's nice of you to say. Later, Lydia decided to get up and walk around. Since everything was a pretense anyway, all she had to do was act normally to be normal. It amounted to the same thing. All she had to do was act fine. She went to the health food shop where some horrendous kids stared up at her like she knew exactly what she'd done and on behalf of all kids everywhere, she was not angry but just disappointed. Her face said, oh, I see that you're a chicken shit. No amount of health food in the world will take away the smell of it. It didn't matter how many times she told herself not to. She was clearly starting this shit. People joked about Catholic guilt, but it was a real and debilitating illness. There was a certain face that old Irish Catholic grandmothers made that had the power to make you feel deeply, deeply ashamed. They applied it to all sorts of situations. You didn't finish your potatoes, you have rejected the love contained in those potatoes. You didn't go to mass on Sunday, your poor old grandmother will now go to her grave unhappy. Lydia pictured all of the millions of Irish Catholic grandmothers on earth, all shaking their heads sadly at her. They all thought she was gonna grow up to be a good girl. They were all so sad that she hadn't. In an even more perverse sense, Lydia thought about the dick as a dad. She thought all of the things you were 100% not supposed to think. She actually wanted to see him again so she could really feel that feeling, the feeling of, I killed your kid. And it wasn't really a kid. It was a jumble of cells, an amoeba, but it was nothing that would become something if left to its own devices. It was a situation in waiting that had to be stopped. He told her that he loved her. He probably even believed it was true. Now that she'd noticed, she couldn't stop noticing how people could never really perceive their own shittiness. Just on this one street, for example, everyone walking past this man on the ground in a sleeping bag. If they looked at him, it was only by accident. She had done the same thing herself countless times because she just didn't want to give her sympathy away. But today it seemed like she had to make some kind of a concession. And so with the blessing of the million grandmothers, Lydia decided to do a small good thing. Maybe it was just a kind of pathetic, self-soothing thing, totally bourgeois and reeking of privilege, but it was a thing. There was a man who lived outside her flat, which meant she had to walk past him every day, not giving her sympathy away. He didn't actually sleep there, but he camped out there all day with a Mickey Mouse cup for change. 
He wasn't the grizzled, grimly humorous type, more like the refugee type. He didn't wield his cup in the air or do sales patter. He just sat there with his head down. When she got to him, a pair in bright blue jackets were already talking to him. Lydia recognised the fish thing on their backs as being some kind of Jesus feeding the 5,000 symbol. Honestly, did they think they had the monopoly on good deeds? Get out of my fucking way, I'm first in line to help this poor cretin. Get out of my fucking way, I'm God's pet and he loves me the best. At the end of each day, they had a clipboard of at least 20 good deeds that they ticked off while smoking cigars and cackling. I bet they pray for his soul and don't give him a penny, Lydia thought. Sure enough, they got up and walked away. Nothing was given, nothing was shared, except all oh, the glory of the clean white God. She shuffled over to him, suddenly certain of what she had to say. Yes, she thought, I will do the thing that nobody would do. Hi. Her face was 10,000 feet above him, hovering at the level of the clouds in the sky. Do you want to come in for something to eat? Lydia felt dizzy for a moment. It was amazing and also horrifying how compliant he was. He didn't even stop to consider whether he actually wanted anything. He just took it like an instruction and got up. She had no idea what to say to him, but now it was too late. And the million grandmothers were all horrified and dropping their knitting and spilling their tea because this was not it, not what it meant at all. Inside, Lydia boiled eggs and toasted soldiers from them both in a half-assed attempt to make something from nothing that really resembled a meal. His name was Man, and he had to spell it out twice for Lydia while she tried to reassign the letters as a name in her mind. She couldn't do it. She had to decide it was a shortening of Manus, but then even Manus sounded completely strange to her. Man-us? He had never had a runny boiled egg with soldiers before. Harold boiled eggs? Yes, of course. Why were they called soldiers? Lydia didn't know. It was probably some colonial racist thing. She held one up and addressed it as good sir, soldier of the empire, etc. So you stick their faces in the egg? Well, it could be the feet, but I've always imagined it to be the face, yeah. So you waterboard them with the egg? Pretty much, and then you bite their heads off. Man looked impressed by the complicated symbolism of British cuisine. Once when I was small, he said, I cracked an egg and a chick fell out. Not into the frying pan, no, into a bowl. I kept it under my bed and fed it worms, but it kept shitting and eventually the smell got so bad my mother realised and chased it out into the street. Oh no, what happened to it? Well, it just hung around outside and I would go out and give it worms until eventually it started digging up its own worms. I think it thought I was its mother. I would love to be the mother of a chick, Lydia said. Well, I liked it for a while, but then the other boys all started calling me chicken dick, so I didn't like that so much. Man had beautiful eyes that had seen everything, but it was obvious to Lydia now that she'd only brought him here so that he, she could confess to him. Imagine giving birth to a chick, she muttered. Imagine how nice it would be to feed it worms from your beak. Imagine cupping it in your palms like a secret. She wanted to tell man she was sorry for everything. She was sorry she wasn't strong enough not to feel sorry. She wanted to tell him to please wash out her brain and scrub especially hard at the spots that contained the shouts of those crazy women at the clinic. It wasn't his job. It would be some kind of a crime to inflict it on him. She knew now. I was raped, man, by someone I thought of as a friend. He wouldn't even say it was rape. He doesn't even know. Isn't it funny? He doesn't even know he's a rapist because I never told him. I wish that baby could have been a tiny chick I could have kept under the bed, but it would have been a person, son or daughter of a rapist, and I would have had to see the eyes of that rapist in the head of my baby every day and never tell them that ever. But she didn't say it. She looked into man's eyes and hoped that he just knew. And that even he was talking about his mother, he was really telling her it was okay. The story was a parable about how it was okay. 
and if, if they knew her story, all eyes everywhere would communicate silently that it was okay. It would be okay. Now that she knew about his pet chick, she could never let man sleep on the street again. That much was clear. The ghost of Ruth was making desperate gestures behind his head. The million grandmothers were exclaiming in horror about this complete stranger in her home, but it was too late. She'd given her sympathy away and she couldn't claw it back. The ball of it just kept unraveling. She'd had no idea how much she had to give away. Thanks. Uh, our next story is from Mick Norton. Uh, Mick lives in Glasgow, but he hails from Tipperary. He gained a master's in script writing from the National University of Ireland, but switched to writing short stories so that he could create a world and characters with more depth. His work has been published in The Third Word, Tales from a Cancelled Country, and on the website glasgowestend.co.uk. Welcome, Mick. Oh. Thanks, Pauline. Uh, this story is called Big Toe. I stood at the box store and looked in at the screaming calf. His belly was getting bigger. Daddy stood behind him with a knife between his teeth. He had the calf caught by the nose, and I thought that if Daddy wasn't doing this, that the calf would just float away. This won't hurt him, he said, as he wiped the knife on his sleeve, then stuck the tip of the blade into the belly of the calf. He made a small hole. A gush of air escaped. The calf began to relax, and his belly shrunk. Daddy rubbed the cup with his fingers. What's wrong with him, I asked. The calf walked off and stood in the corner. He picked out some hay. Other calves came up and sniffed around him. It's trapped gas, Daddy said. Will he die? I'd rather he had a dose of scour. You can be unlucky if you miss it. I'll keep an eye on him. Good man. I'll get Billy to take a look. We went inside. Mammy made tea. Daddy scratched his nose and relaxed in his chair. I better give that cut a wipe down with some dettol, he said. I can do it. You're some man for one man. What do you give him, Mammy asked. Billy will have something. He's about later. Mammy looked over at me. Show Daddy, will you? I'm sick of seeing you limping about. Daddy put his cup down. I guess you better give us a gawk. I took off my left sock, lifted my foot into the air. Daddy got off his chair and caught my foot. He examined the toe close up. It's not ready yet, he said. He glanced at Mammy. I think we'll get him to the doctor next week. It's starting to get sore. I'd say it's sore all right, he said. He touched the corner of my big toe. I pulled back, the pain was sharp. The toe was very red. A mix of pus and blood came out the side. I told you to keep the V in it, but you don't listen. He took a deep breath and sat down shaking his head. Mammy smiled at me, but I could see she agreed with him. Keep it clean, he said, and don't touch it with the scissors. You need, you need to leave the nail grow out so the doctor can get, out, get at it. Billy came when daddy was away. He was my uncle. He studied to be a vet, but never qualified. He was used by every farmer about. He poured a pink mix into a bucket, added some hot water, then got the calf to drink it. I stood beside him. I've warned him before. He just needs to make sure he measures out the milk powder properly. Your father don't listen to no one, only himself. 
Would the calf have died? If no one spotted it, he would. He'd not be able to breed. His lungs would have been crushed. He'll be okay now. He needs watching, but he'll be fine. Jesus, you ask a lot of questions. The hole where the knife went in was crusted over. He wiped it down with some nettle. The calf bucked. He made too big a cut with the knife. He'll be on to me complaining when it gets infected. I cycled down to the King's River to meet Andy. We skimmed stones and tried to build a dam, but the river was too wide. The water kept breaking through. After a while, we threw big stones into the deep end. They made a big splash before they floated to the bottom. Want to kill some rats? Andy asked. We went to the corn store behind the old creamery. A large green cylinder rotted with rust. I followed Andy up the ladder into the small hatch. He jumped down into the mouldy corn. It grew moldier every year. The creamery had closed down years ago. Come on, jump. I hate rats, I said. Fucking chicken. Our voices echoed. I looked up at the cloudy sky through the opening at the top. Andy walked around. He kicked in the holes on the surface of the corn. Now they'll none come out, I said. He took the butt of a cigarette out of his coat pocket. He looked, he looked up at me, then lit it up. You want a drag? Where'd you get it? I robbed it. No, I said. I tried to end the one of Mammy's once. Daddy smelt it and cut the arse off me. Andy finished the cigarette. He flicked it to the ground and ran around in circles. You're an idiot, I said. I spotted a rat squeezed through a small hole in the cylinder. It had a long, stringy tail. Look, there's a big one. The rat came in a few feet like he's blind. His ears twitched as he sniffed around. Andy jumped. He reached out with his hands, but the rat ran like lightning out the hole again. I nearly had him, he said. I felt his tail slip through my fingers. We crossed the river, made our way to our bikes. My toes started to hurt. Show us, Andy said. No, come on. No, fuck off. Will I catch it? Yeah. I took off my shoe. The corner of my sock was soaked with blood. I pulled the sock off. The toe was the reddest I'd ever seen it. The nail cut right into the raw flesh. That's gross. I know. He jumped on his bike. You're contagious. You diseased leper, he shouted as he cycled off. When I got home, Billy was drinking tea with Daddy. They looked over at me when I walked into the kitchen. You fancy a puck? No, I gave it up. Billy laughed. How can you give it up? You're only young. He won't, come, he won't go back because they never played him, Daddy said. Nothing wrong keeping the bench warm, Billy said. You get your chance. No, it's a load of shite. They both laughed. Billy finished his tea. He leaned back in the chair. I suppose it is, he said. I watched television. I could hear them getting drunk in the kitchen. They were very loud. Daddy kept coming in to go to the drinks press. They were trying different whiskies. Daddy had a large collection. After a while, Mammy came in. She stood at the door for a minute, then walked over and turned down the volume on the television. Come in for a minute, she said. I walked into the kitchen. Daddy and Billy stared at me. Mammy lit up a cigarette by the cooker. Daddy stood up. He threw back what was left in his last and steadied himself. Give us a look at your toe, he said. No way. Go on, show your uncle. 
Everyone was staring at me. I took off my sock. Billy kneeled down. He had a good look at it. Jesus, that's really cutting in, he said. Daddy leaned on the table. You think it's ready? Ah, yeah, she'll come out. Daddy looked at Mammy. Can you get a nail scissors and tweezers? I placed my foot back on the ground. I glanced at Mammy. She quenched her cigarette in the ashtray and left the room. Billy sat down. He took a swig from his glass. Podrick, I think you better get the young lad a drop of whiskey. Daddy took a glass out of the press. He poured a small Jameson into it. He walked over and handed it to me. Get that down, yeah. It's a 20-year-old, special vintage. I thought I was getting it out at the doctor's. Drink that up, you'll be, you'll be right as rain. You won't feel a thing. I held the glass in my hand and smelt it. I'd smelt it before. You'd always pull the caps off bottles to get a good sniff when you're, there's nothing to be doing. It burnt my nose the way it always did. I took a sip, let it slide down my throat. My eyes watered. I started to cough. They both laughed. Drink up, get it down ya. I drank it back. My head, my head felt warm. Mammy walked back in. She handed him his scissors and tweezers. I check on the calves. She touched Daddy's arm. He looked up at her. If he's not able for it, I'll bring him to the doctor tomorrow. We're not paying for some doctor when Billy can do it. She left the room. I heard the back door close. Billy stood up. Right, lie back there and relax, he said. I sat back into the armchair. Billy pulled the chair over and sat down. This won't hurt with us. Billy caught my leg. He placed it carefully on his knee. He studied the toe for a moment, moving his head closer to get a better look. I won't lie to you. This will hurt like hell. You'll cry like a baby. Don't do it then. You'll hurt, but tomorrow you'll feel like a new man. Daddy knelt down in front of me. It was, a it was the way he knelt when he said the rosary. This will make a man of you, Jim. He held down my stomach with his arms. I couldn't move. When I looked, I saw Billy had my foot pressed down onto his knee. He touched my toe and it stung. Leave it, Billy, leave it. Tears welled up. I tried to kick my foot away, but it didn't budge. Billy was as strong as an ox. Shh, calm down, boy. We're not even started yet. He had my big toe between his fingers. He brought the scissors down, slowly cutting into the corner of the nail. A sharp pain went through my foot, all the way up my leg. I could see the scissors. It looked like it was a long way into my toe. Billy stopped. He took a drink of his whiskey. You're doing good, lad. There's plenty of nail down there. You'll be fine in no time. He started to cut again, getting deeper. Blood spurted out. Billy removed the scissors. Throw us a tea towel there, Podrick. Daddy stood up. He grabbed one from the table and threw it to Billy. He wiped the blood away from the toe with, and, and his fingers. Then he pressed the corner of the tea towel into the red flesh until a large burst of pus came out. That's the badness out now. Home road from here on in, he said. I bet you're feeling better already. No, I said. Just one little bit more, Billy said. Hold him, Podrick. He might jump with this. Daddy leaned on my stomach. He kept his eyes from me. Billy grabbed a nail with the tweezers and pulled down. He stopped when he got to the bottom of the toe, 
then turned the tweezers slightly. He pulled the nail into the red flesh. Slowly, he began to draw it out. For a moment, I thought he was cutting my toe off. I, I couldn't see it with all the blood coming out. I gripped the cushion. I looked down at Daddy's hands. He had big, hairy hands, and when I looked back at Billy, he had covered my foot with a tea towel. There we go. Came out easy in the end, he said. Billy held the tweezers up to the light. He looked down at me. God, you're as white as a ghost. They stood up to examine the tweezers. I brought my foot up to, the, to my stomach. That's some nail, Daddy said. Look how thick it is, twisted into itself. Surprised he could walk at all. Billy showed it to me. The nail was big and long, coiled at the bottom like melted wax from a candle. Mammy walked in. She rubbed my head. Ruined my good tea towel, I see. They all laughed. Daddy poured me another whiskey. Thank you. Who knew you could get such a drama out of an ingrown toenail? Eh? Uh, our last uh, storyteller tonight is uh, Samina, Samina Chowdhury. She was born in Manchester and moved to Lahore as a child. After completing a master's degree in English literature from Punjab University, she became a lecturer at Baria College, Karachi, before transitioning to Glasgow in 1999. Samina is primarily a writer of short stories, though she's also working on a novella. Her stories have been published by Scottish Pen, The Word, and in the book Tales from a Cancelled Country. Her poetry has also been anthologised in Poetry Forward Press. So, big hand for Samina. Thank you, Polly. Um, this story has been inspired from Jim's song, Oh My Beautiful You. It's set in Pakistan and it's called Taxi. Rumi woke up thinking about the girl. She was beautiful, tall as a babel tree and such a fair complexion like she was from the Hazara Valley. He smiled and thought a bit more about her as his eye caught a little crack on the ceiling. He'd buy a bunch of pink and white peonies, and if the mother came out, he'd hand them to her. But if luck had it, she'd be alone in the house, and then he could give her the flowers and tell her how much he liked her. They could go out to a restaurant or even to the cinema. He imagined taking her hands in his, kissing her fingers so soft and delicate. He shook his head, waking up. No more of this following her on the motorbike. He got up and went into the bathroom. He looked in the mirror. The hair was a mess. Small black bristles were noticeable on the side of his cheeks. He washed his face, changed, and walked round the corner to the barber's shop. Hashwani was sitting, eyes closed, getting a hot towel shave and it looked like the barber hadn't noticed him as he pressed Hashwani's shoulders. Ah, the sound came as the barber kneaded his hands into the back of his neck. Ruby picked up the newspaper as he sat down. 
He flicked to the sports page, read some headlines and then put the newspaper down. It was cold and there was a feeling of dampness inside the shop. He went out and stood in the doorway where the sunlight was coming in. Today neither the barber or Hashwani was in a hurry and it seemed like Hashwani had dozed off. Ruby took out a half-smoked cigarette from his pocket. He lit it, taking a couple of drags. He stubbed it against the wall and put it back into his trouser pocket. A young woman walked by. He stared at her, his eyes lingering on her breasts and then glancing at her fleshy buttocks. The woman looked back and he liked the way she smiled towards him. Hashwani had opened his eyes. He sat up looking at Rumi through the mirror in front of him. Rumi, how is it? Heard you're looking for a job. I still am. Come to the garage. I'll ask one of the boys to fit you in somewhere. I don't know much about welding and all the other stuff. Just do what the boys tell you. How much will I get? Don't worry, we won't let you starve. Don't know if I can do it then. That's all right. The barber rubbed some oil into his hands. He rubbed his fingers across Hashwani's chin and face and then took the towel off from his neckline. He then turned round and looked at Rumi. You here to make a payment? How much do I owe you, Rumi said. The barber took out a filthy copy from behind the counter and flicked through the pages. One shave and two haircuts. Listen, I need a haircut today, but I promise I'll square you up soon. The barber was watching him. Only if you pay up some of the amount. Yes? Rumi put his hand in his pocket. I'll see what I've got then. The barber nodded, wiping the back of the leather seat with a wet towel. He picked up a bottle of talcum powder and some other bottles and then went off towards the back of the shop. Hashwani stood up. He went up to the counter. He took out a couple of banknotes from his pocket. Leaving them on the counter, he told the barber to keep the change. He stretched and walked slowly to where Rumi was standing. He put his hand on his big belly sticking out in front of him. Bone lazy some people are. Sorry? Never mind, son. I know you was being nice, but the thing is, I'm looking for a proper job. One where I could make some money. You fed up of loafing around then? Rumi sniffed. I think I've fallen in love. Who have you enticed? Why do you want to know? Hashwani shrugged. I suppose it doesn't really matter. That new girl living in the rented house from across the yogurt shop. Taxi. What do you mean, Rumi frowned. Your fair and lovely was with Siraj the other night. He was saying she was a good ride, though. Dirty bastards. Hashwani laughed. I might be there myself. Could put in a good word for you. Stop this shit. Rumi got down the steps and walked away. Five minutes later, he was standing outside the blue door where the girl stayed. He knocked on the door and then rang the bell. 
Someone from inside shouted, Who is it? It's me. Can I come in? The door opened. The girl was standing there, wearing a tight-fitted blouse with a low-cut neckline. And that black mole below her neck, he was so close to her that he could touch it with his hand. It's you. You know me then, Rumi smiled. Goon. Me. Yes, you. Listen, I'm sorry for following you around, but it's just that I really like you. You don't know how much I love you. Get your ass out of here before the old lady comes out. Rana, who is it? It was a woman's voice coming from somewhere inside. A bumhead from that junky side of the neighborhood. What does he want? He says he wants to be screwed. The bastard. Tell him to get lost right now. Rumi stood there, not knowing what to say. Then he moved closer to the girl and was thinking of whether to grab her hand when he thought he heard Hashwani's voice. He turned round and saw him standing a couple of feet away. What's happening here, Hashwani said. The girl gestured at Rumi. This goon is saying I owe him money. Hashwani peered over his spectacles towards Rumi. It just won't be a slap on the face if you don't fuck off. The mother had come out, wearing a towel wrapped around her head, and her whole face, apart from the eyes, was covered in bleach cream. Her look softened the moment she saw Hashwani. She smiled at him as he put his hand out to shake hers. Then he reached over. He took the girl's hand in his and kissed it. May I? Yes, of course, come in, the mother said. The mother looked towards Rumi, giving him a filthy look. Idiot, she said. Yes, the place is full of them, Hashwani said as he went inside. Rumi walked over to the yogurt shop. He fished out the almost crumpled end of the cigarette from his pocket. He smoked until he felt his lips burning. Thank you. Thanks very much. We're now going to do a wee, few wee more tunes to uh, finish off the evening. Uh, if I can find my guitarist, that is, wherever he is. Oh, there he's there. <laughs> I have to say thank you very much again for coming along. Really appreciate it. Uh, obviously, we can't do a concert or do a, a reading without an audience, so thanks very much. And there's still a few books uh, left if you've not got one. Please buy one. Uh, is there any threats I can make? No, really. Please buy one.
Thanks very much. I'll tell you, a slight awkward silence there at the start because I have such a bad memory that I couldn't remember the reader's name, so, which is embarrassing, obviously. So thanks very much, Samina. That was lovely. I enjoyed the reading, but uh, I was rude by not saying thank you at the end of it. <laughs> Sorry about that.
fight with the strap again. That's not a normal memory problem, you know. Pauline Lynch. Uh, it's got a very strong flavour, isn't it? Like the story. very much. Should have planned it so I had uh, less guitar changes. Or is that good? I don't know. And I love your guitar. Okay, this one's called Promise We'll Meet Again. And uh, as I said in the first half, um, all the songs have some kind of story behind them. And uh, this one is actually related to my 
my mother actually when she passed away about four years ago now it's called Promise We'll Meet Again from my hand take this golden thread and carry them with you wherever you go and promise that we'll meet again promise that we'll meet again spirals and spires and chapels of stone brothers and sisters our own Choir is singing for those who have gone. They sing, promise that we'll meet again. Promise that we'll meet again. So hold in your hand stones in the earth. Try to follow the tracer of a love now gone. Speak to the silence that's deep in your heart. Peter and Rose, Christina and John. Take these poems that are written for you. Take these lessons learned. And we'll walk down the old road where the blackberries grow. And we'll promise that we'll meet again. Promise that we'll meet again. Yes, we'll promise that we'll meet again. Thanks very much. Okay. Two more regions for you. Uh, this one's called Oh My Beautiful You. I've just remembered the word virtuoso. <laughs> is a virtuoso hey. <laughs> so obviously that, that means like uh, a good hour and a half I'll be able to remember everybody's name you know just have to keep keep, my, keep it in the back of my head sing it so well oh my beautiful you I'm under your spell be my 
friend We can laugh and talk Oh, my beautiful you This time I've come When maybe in your heart Maybe in your heart you'll find something true. Maybe in my heart I'll find you. Maybe in your heart you'll find something true. Maybe in my heart I'll find you. last wee tune for you. When we get to the end of this tune, uh, before everybody goes away, I'd like to invite all the writers up onto the stage, just to take a wee bow to thank you for sharing your stories with us tonight. This one here is called Dinny, 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 and it's one of the ones actually I do not sing normally, so I'll have to look at the words for a second. It's one of the simpler ones. Hopefully it's uh, got a little bit of a beat to it. Oh, my Denny, Denny, Denny. I used to call you my honey Now you're cozy with your lover So don't come home tonight Oh, my Denny, Denny, Denny I guess you think it's so funny That you're spending all our money So don't come home tonight And all of my See, that's just the way the love breaks. You're just looking for some fire. Just trying to get a little higher. And all for some thrill sakes. See, that's just the way the love breaks. Let me tell you that my heart breaks. So just come home tonight. Thank you. 
I'm just looking for some fire Just trying to get a little higher And offer some thrill six Say that's just the way the love breaks Let me tell you that my heart breaks So just come home tonight Let me tell you that my heart breaks Let me tell you that my heart So just come home tonight Thanks very much for listening My name is Jim Byrne And uh, I'm on the CD But all the writers I'd like to invite you up on stage now just to say thanks to the audience and also to celebrate their writing. So on you go, off your arses up here. <laughs> Big applause for our writers. going to read them all out again. Stephanie Brown. Pat Byrne. James Carson, who is not here, but I give him a cheer anyway. Samina Chowdhury. Special cheer for Samina, because I name went out of my head, even though I know Samina. James Connerty. James. Pauline Lynch. Callum McLean, <laughs> Gillian Margaret Mays, Michael Norton, and Stephen Watt, who seems to have disappeared. And give yourself a round of applause for coming along. Thanks very much, really appreciate it, and good night. Cheers. Buy the book. <laughs> and that was the launch night of... 10 Writers Telling Lies. Um, I hope you found something, if not everything, um, to enjoy. Uh, as you can see, it's a real mixture of voices and styles and uh, Jim's fantastic music just sets the whole thing off, I think. Um, that's enough from us at the moment. Uh, I can't say who we're going to have on next because I haven't asked them yet. Um, but whoever it is, it'll be someone equally as interesting and completely different. See you then. Cheers. Mm -hmm.